Hello, everybody. I'm Sean Reynolds from Sportsnet, about to be joined by Ken Weeb from Sportsnet. Together, we are Kenny and Rennie, and this is the Kenny and Rennie post-game show after, oof, what do you call that? Heartbreaker against the Pittsburgh Penguins? Is that a heartbreaker? I got to say, Kenny and I were chatting right before we came on here. I, 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 I'm going to go on the record early and say that may have been the Jets' best game of the year. Like I, I take a look at that, and outside of a nine-second stretch there, where one is a little bit of a lucky goal, but you know, pass goes in off of a skate, and then, and then, you know, an unfortunate turnover on the part of Connor Hellebuck puts this into a two-two tie, goes into overtime. They aren't able to win it in the shootout. But I look at this game, and had that not happened to me, this was clearly going to have been the Jets' best game this season. What have we been calling for the Jets to do that they haven't done earlier in this road trip and for most of the season? That's put in a full 60 minutes. Well, this was like 59 minutes and, you know, 51 seconds of of complete game that the Jets were able to put in here. Um, I don't want to be that guy who's saying, you know, Hey, don't worry about that house on fire over there. That was that was a really great game there. Clearly, there's you know there's there's problems here with the where the Jets sit in the stands. We'll get into that. I thought a really really revealing interview at the end of the game with Connor Hellebuck when he talked about where they are at in the standings. But before we get all to that, best thing to do is bring in my main man Ken Weeb here. You know his entry music. It's best in the business. Here comes Kenny. Kenny, uh, let's dive right into it because uh, I feel like uh, we could talk about other stuff, but let's get right into it. There's going to be lots to talk about on this show. Uh, w- what do you take away from that game? Well, Sean, I mean, you touched on it. Uh, I mean, you could even extend the amount of time played into the extra five minutes of overtime, which was uh, quite compelling. Uh, so you could even go there. It was into the 60s for the Jets, right? I mean, in terms of strong minutes, uh, yes, nine seconds will turn this I mean Connor Hellebuck so blunt in his other assessment saying this went from what should have been a shutout to a shootout loss I mean I thought that Hellebuck was excellent uh, especially given the circumstances 11 starts in a row uh, back-to-backs 22 hours apart um, I mean all most of the things that we've been talking about including the things they didn't do well yesterday I mean they were better at a lot of those things their defense defensive structure I think was a little bit better their puck management in a lot of ways, was improved. Uh, yes, I mean the first goal, a few a few things on the breakdown on the puck that bounces off uh, Kasperi Kapanen, but uh, I think that the Jets actually played a strong game. I mean, a, a lot of people, you know, I understand folks are upset and there's angst for losses in a row. This isn't a rose-colored glasses situation. I mean, if the Jets play that kind of a game, they're probably going. That's as close to the template as we've seen uh, certainly recently, Sean. Uh, in terms of what I saw, uh, and a lot of things that, uh, you know, Connor Hellbuck was very good, um, but, you know, he took it on himself, uh, you know, 
he was very frustrated with how that second goal transpired, uh, what happened in, in real time. It looked like it was going to be icing, uh, but then he noticed that the Pittsburgh forward was basically neck and neck with Brendan Dillon, and he wasn't quite sure if Dillon would beat him for the icing to be called. Uh, and by the time the realization happened, uh, I think, Sean, in a perfect world, we would both agree. In a perfect world, if Connor Hellebuck can reverse that. But again, you're you're asking a goalie to go to his backhand under duress. So the fact that he tried to rim it, I think the rim it itself was the right play. But he needs to get that up on the boards or on the glass so that it rattles around and it's past Jeff Carter. Uh, but again, I mean, to, I understand that Hellebuck's uh, puck handling adventures are not a new item. But this was not a game that was lost uh, by Connor Hellebuck's puck handling, to me, anyway. So, I mean, I don't see that as the same old. I mean, I know a lot of the Jets have blown some leads this year, but they were 12-0 and and leading after two periods. So uh, I think that that is kind of a little bit blown out of proportion. But again, that, Sean, that's a game the Jets have to have two points out of in the current situation that they're in. We heard Brendan Dillon say it. We heard Connor Hellebuck say it. We heard Dave Lowry say it. Obviously, Dave Lowry is going to be looking at positives because he needs his team to play well in these next four games before the All-Star break. The Jets know the situation. They know that they're in a tough spot. Um, so, yeah, do the, are there some areas they need to tighten up in? Yes, but to me, this was not a, you know, this was not a terrible effort or anything of that nature. So, uh, yeah, hey, we get it. No moral victories, and the Jets have to actually put points in the bank if they want to improve their standing. But... Uh, in terms of how they need to play, I, I think it was a pretty steady effort, like you said, outside from those nine seconds. You know, I'm going to address this quickly, Joe from Winnipeg, and some other people have been taking disagreeing with me on my assessment of this being their best game of the season, saying best game of the season was the win over Edmonton in the game against Toronto. I heard some other people say that as well. The, the one thing I'll circumstances you're talking about, you're the, talking circumstances about the circumstances are entirely different. And what's different about them is the fact that the Jets, when they were playing Toronto, and I said this in our last show, Toronto had come in and played. Uh, uh, Minnesota the night before and Minnesota was on a streak of playing their best hockey of the year and maybe at that point were the best team in the league and they were chewing teams up who were rolling into town so not only did Toronto go in and get chewed up by that team then they had to hop on a plane come into Winnipeg and then play Winnipeg the next day so that wasn't the best version of the Toronto Maple Leafs that you saw on that day and then if you take the Oilers game as well the Oilers had just played four games in six days or something like that I talked to their broadcasters who said this is not the Edmonton Oilers, although it sure looked like the Edmonton Oilers that we're seeing now. So, this, like, think about what happened here. The Jets played Boston yesterday, and Boston was absolutely phenomenal. A grinding team who put them through the ringer with pressure all over the ice. It was the kind of game that not only can tire you out physically, but definitely tire you out mentally. And the Jets came in and got a good start against a team that is known for blowing teams out of the rink. At the, in the initial part of the game, so check, they pulled that off. And then throughout the game, like I said, coming off of playing back-to-back -back games or you know playing the second of a back-to-back -back in afternoon games, which I think makes it tricky as well, I thought given the circumstances, this was the, the Jets' most Lion-esque effort that we've seen from them so far this year. But it, 
to your point, Ken, this team, they need the points right now. So th- this is a bit of an egregious error. Now, do, do you think this, and I know Connor Helbeck doesn't necessarily feel like he made a mistake there. He said it in the post game. Yeah, it lands on the player's stick, but he almost talked about it as though it's a fluke. We know that Connor Hellebuck lives in a world where he insulates himself against some of the situations. He'll come out and have what we look at as saying one of the worst games of his career, and he'll say he really liked his game, right? He's a guy who likes to focus in on the positives and not likes to dwell on the negatives. He thinks it was the right play and that the Pittsburgh Penguins stick for for his matter of record was in the wrong spot, and it was a fluke that he got that. But is that a lack of focus that you can just – not show at this point where this team is, where they are in the standings, where they are situationally after having lost those games. Like, is this just a lack of focus that cost the Winnipeg Jets this game? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it a lack of focus per se, Sean, because again, I I think that Hellebuck was in position where he thought it was clearly going to be icing. And then he realized his guy may not be winning the battle. And then to me, what I saw was a communication breakdown. And that's sort of what, what, how Brendan Dillon answered the question to to me when I asked him directly about it. So um, does he need to be a little firmer on the on the play? I, again, I don't think it was the wrong play to play the puck, but in that situation, um, given some of the previous aforementioned adventures, the safer play is to stay in the crease and hope that his player wins the race to the puck, whether it's icing or not, Maybe Brennan Dillon has a better chance on a hard rim than Connor Hellebuck does, but I don't necessarily think it was a, a situation where he, uh, you know, made a tactical error because of a lack of focus. I mean, Connor Hellebuck was dialed in all afternoon long. Uh, that's just a play that didn't get completed. I guess it would be how uh, I would counter that one, Sean. But uh, I mean, again, it's easy for us it, when we're at home watching on the couch or sitting in front of a TV to say, "Why don't you just stay in the crease?" I mean. It's an easy thing to say, but um, I think that in a lot of situations, the goalie is asked to help out his defenseman in that situation. But to me, you know, would he have been better served by allowing Brennan Dillon to either win the puck battle or, you know, something of that nature? And even if a penalty results in it or whatever, I mean, I get it. But I think that we're we're dealing with the result, which is because it's a result-related business. I don't think it was necessarily a, a mistake uh, due to a lack of focus, but um, I mean, could fatigue have played a role there? I mean, what we know for sure is this: Connor Hellebuck would have been ticked off that he gave up <laughs> that he gave up the shutout on a play that he really had nothing that he could do about it. It was off the skate. I mean, um, he said it himself. He was looking at a redirection and he was playing it as if it was going to go off Kasperi Kapanen's stick. So, um, right. I think, again, that's just the first one is certainly unlucky. And I mean, is it unlucky that Jeff Carter happened to be right in the position where the puck landed? Of course, but it's a great read by Jeff Carter. So you and I are not going to take that away from him uh, either. Right, Sean? That's a great read by a guy who sees a goalie under duress. Yeah. And then too, oh yeah, that's that's a veteran play right there. Yeah. Right, a smart play by a veteran player, and I mean Jeff Carter's had a great year, and, and a, what a pickup by Ron Hextall and Brian Burke. Like this is a guy who some people thought Jeff Carter was ready to retire. He got talked into going to Pittsburgh because of the culture uh, that they were there, and it had to have helped Sean that Ron Hextall was in L.A. right when Jeff for a part of the time when Ron, when Jeff Carter was there. So. Um, 
yeah, I mean, smart play by the opponent in that situation. But the Jets had ample opportunity, uh, whether it was earlier in the game or later on in the game, for that not to be a factor. Uh, and the fact that here's the other, I would counter that the fact that the Jets didn't fold after giving up that second goal would tell me more about what we maybe learned about the Jets on this road trip um, than previously. But, I mean, let's also remember something here, too. And yesterday I didn't mention it. The Pit- the Boston Bruins are 10-2 and in January, and the Pittsburgh Penguins have now won 25 out of 26 games, I believe, is the, is the statistic. So, um, you know, when you hear a coach say, uh, you have to give credit to the opponent. Sometimes that's just lip service. This is not lip service. These are two of the hottest teams in the National Hockey League. But here's the thing. The Jets want to be one of those teams. Right now, they're not converting their chances uh, at an elite rate. And that's part of the reason why they only got two out of eight points on this current road trip. Let's get into the refing because people clearly want to talk about that. Um, and I know I've been... Uh, uh, I've I've been the guy who says I hate talking about refing in the shows after yeah. this. Um, let's talk about it today, though, because I do think that it played a factor in this game. Um, what was your take on the stripes tonight? I thought they were poor both directions. Uh, obviously, there's a disparity in power plays for the Penguins. Uh, I don't think it was a was a game where the Jets were dirtier than the Penguins, and that the, the disparity should have been four to one or whatever. It, I think that's what it was at the end of the day. Uh, there were opportunities that were missed for Jed, the Jets to go on the power play, but there were probably a couple infractions that the Jets uh, probably uh, you know committed but were not called. So I would say it was a poorly officiated game overall, um, but I don't think that officiating was the reason the Jets lost. I mean, it certainly, you know, I think it certainly contributed to, uh, you know, maybe some of the disparity in the shots on goal. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I don't think that the uh, – um, I don't know. I, I, to me, it's a game where the referees had a tough, tough day. I think that's pretty evident um, to me. But I, I don't, like I said, I don't think that the Jets lost because of poor officiating. Having said that, I think the game was officiated poorly. Um, I know there's been a lot of debate on the play about Nathan Beaulieu. I mean, I understand the way that the rule was made that if you're, if you're, if the defenseman is in a chase position. And even if he gets the stick, if he hauls down the player, that was meant to be tripping. Whereas previously, if you got this, if you got your puck on the stick, it was not supposed to be called. In this situation, that's not the spirit of the rule. Nathan Beaulieu is sliding. The player tries to jump over him, which is okay. Naturally, you're going to try to get it, get over top of him. But then he, he, I don't think that actually Beaulieu's body caused the tripping. I think that the player actually got over Beaulieu, and then tripped on the stick and kind of toe-picked. So to me, I don't think that that was a uh, a good call for sure. But I don't know. I mean, uh, could it have been goalie interference on Crosby in overtime? Absolutely. I mean, he barreled into him. But you could even hear Hellebuck. He applauded the effort by Crosby to get to the net. And the, the crazy thing that you had to go back to the super slow-mo, he actually got the puck on the redirection. That's what yes. caused it to hit the post. So. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those. But if that goes in, you know the Jets are going to challenge. I wonder if it would have counted because he actually got to the puck before the contact was made. It would have. Right? So, yeah, you you know what I mean? So, I mean, that would have been one where people would have been up in arms and going crazy. But uh, what an effort to get there. But having said that, despite the effort, I think it would still could have been called goalie interference. Um, 
It, it could be both, right? Like it could be both ha- have been a good goal because once the puck goes in, the play is over, right? If it, I guess after is is after the like the the play has ended by that point. But I still do think. I mean, it it can be both. It can be a good effort, yeah, and and a nice try. But it can also be a penalty for for running the goaltender because he does and. Pierre-Luc Dubois is not pushing him in there. It's probably meaningless. I think there's only nine seconds left in overtime at that point. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't think that it's the biggest deal. I'll go back to the Nathan Bolio play. That made absolutely no sense to me because I get the idea that, okay, if you trip a guy with your stick, if you trip him with your body. So right. if, I, if I'm playing you and I throw myself at your feet to trip you, then that's a tripping call. But Nate Bolio lied down and was sliding for a long way the player has, you know, it, basically the player is going to the same spot in my mind. This is how I explain it. The player is going to the same spot that Nathan Beaulieu's body is already occupying. If he trips over him, it's because he skated into an area that Nathan Beaulieu got to first. That one made absolutely no sense to me. I thought that was a bad call. Um, I will. He's say got this, to adjust I, his route. Like Heinen has to adjust his exactly, route because the player's exactly. there. It's the same as he, if the defenseman was first. standing in front of him. You'd go he around him. That territory right. First. Ridiculous. 100%. Um, there was a play where Latang had his. Like I thought this was. I thought this was pretty egregious for the refs. Either way, because because they'd called so much before that point, but Latang gets his stick up into Dubois' wrist. Right. Yes. So Dubois, which is this is a smart play. This is what I've talked about. Dubois he grabbed it. Past. He well, he hooked it up underneath his his right. arm. But but if if the stick isn't there, he can't hold on to the stick, right? So he's trying to hammer it home to the refs that the stick isn't a pl- spot it shouldn't be. That's a hook. And so yeah, he's trying to hammer agreed. that home, but at the same time, he's holding the stick in the process to the point that Latang just lets the stick go. <laughs> and it's like a ghost skating around behind Dubois for a couple of seconds. And so to me, first off, that's a hooking penalty. But if it's yeah. not a hooking penalty, then it's a clear holding the stick penalty. And the ref not making a call one way or the other either way is, to me, an admission that they messed up that call. But you can't be letting stuff slide at that stage of the game and admitting, yeah, we missed that one when you've called so many penalties in the one direction. The last one I'll go to uh, is, uh, I, I wanted to ask you about this. Do you think there's any chance of supplemental discipline towards Dylan for that hit? No, not to for me, me. To me, that was clear targeting of the head. He doesn't get I don't, any other piece of his body. Uh, I don't know. I thought he got his shoulder on the way up for me personally. I didn't and... think so. I didn't think so. To me, that looked like straight up targeting the head. Yeah, I mean, I don't agree. I mean, I, I I've I've saw okay. I've seen that view on Twitter a little bit, but to me, I thought uh, I didn't. I mean, someone also thought he might have left his feet. I didn't think he left his feet. His um, his left foot, or sorry, I think that's it, an inertia situation. It's an it's a situation where you closest to the boards is planted. Uh, right, that's what I think. Made, and then so he hits the board on the inertia. So yeah, it's it's not. He, I understand no why way. he's ticked off about it for sure. I mean, of course. I mean. But I think it was more, uh, that was, to me, that was more, isn't it more a fact where the blood comes because he hits his nose on the boards? I don't think it was the chin. I don't think it was the well, shoulder. I think he got all chin. I, I, you know, there, there was. Well, no, but look, the, the, blood, the blood comes from when he hits his face on the glass. So I don't yeah, think it was. I don't think so. I think really? I. Really? Where's the underneath the chin? That's why he spits the mouth guard and he's spitting blood oh. out right off the bat. If oh, okay. you see him go off the ice, he grabs the mouth guard to get rid of it, and it comes out a little bloody, and he keeps spit, spitting. Oh, okay. I, 
to, to me, it looked like that, but I, I, I'm not saying one bit that it was intentional, but I think I, I, I would challenge anyone to go look at that and take a look at all views. Every single view I saw looked to me that like contact with the shoulder looks like a brush of the shoulder at most to me, which does not count as contact. He looks like he gets him straight on the chin. I was wondering if there would be, uh, um, the, if there would be a look at that by player safety, but I don't think that there's been enough noise. So it's probably not going to happen. I I think it probably should, but that's okay. I'm I'm fine with moving on from that. Let's move on. Sorry, right, let's go right here. I, and uh, I mean, Joe, I appreciate a lot of what Joe has to say. I, I don't. I disagree with this take completely. And today is a perfect example. We've been saying all year long. When is Dubois going to be the guy at 20 minutes and Shifley at 17? Oh, guess what? Today's the day. Pierre Luc Dubois 2050. Mark Shifley 1734. And in terms of Blake Wheeler, Blake Wheeler had six shots on goal, Joe. I mean, what do you expect from him after missing six weeks of ice time than what you saw in the first two games? Did Yevgeny Malkin walk around him to a degree? For sure. But that isn't the only reason the goal happened. Wheeler was skating well. He had, Sean, you would agree. I mean, he had two vintage net drives where he went wide on a defenseman and actually got to the net really well. So uh, yeah, to me, I tried that five hole. Kept trying for the five hole. Couldn't I don't. It. I personally don't think that anyone could have asked for any more from Blake Wheeler in these last two games. I mean, um, I just don't. I mean, what did you think? I mean, I thought that I'd. And here's the other part. Today, Wheeler in the second game, fifteen forty nine. So Dave Lowry looked out for Dave for Blake Wheeler, and he also recognized that a guy like Kyle Connor was really going today, and. Connor's a guy who gets 24-55. So, I mean, we talked about this yesterday. Well, it looked like Lowry obviously views Blake Wheeler as an important part of this team, which he should, but he didn't overtax his minutes today. So, I don't know, Joe, unless you have some other examples of guys who you thought should have played more, I think that Lowry actually backed up his words again today with action. Well, here's the deal, the way that I look at this, and someone had touched on this earlier on. They'd said it could have been, you know, 3 nothing in the first period for the Oh, Winnipeg for sure. Um, and and it, it made me think I always go into this. Paul Maurice used to talk about not blowing leads, but not getting that next goal to put things a little bit out of reach. And I would think that maybe today's game was a perfect example of that. All those opportunities that Kyle Connor had, all those posts, Dubois has two of them, all over the ice, you know, guys were getting scoring opportunities uh, and, and and they weren't cashing in on them. And And to me, that's the difference in this game. And it has been for a while, like the Jets lost against Boston yesterday because they can't generate enough offense. They lost against uh, Washington for the exact same thing. They go up two to nothing and then they can't generate more offense yeah. to put that game out of reach. Uh, I mean, Nashville is a little bit of a different scenario because they scored so many goals. But this is a team right now that needs offense. They need to get back to burying the puck like they're capable of doing. So... Uh, one, I agree with your take, Ken, that the, the the usage of those two players and the fact that their minutes went down compared to the last game is telling in itself. But two, like Mark Shifley, I believe, has points in four straight games. I, I, to be honest, I don't know how many, but he's putting up points every single game. You need points right now. This is what you need. So it's interesting because, what you know, I, I think a lot of the people who would be, you know, 
saying trade Shifley, move on from Shifley, uh, don't play him as much, are the same people who, like, I'm guessing that the Venn diagram is a pretty close to a circle on the same people who are saying, play Perfetti more, have Perfetti come up more. Well, right. this is another game where Cole Perfetti, as good as he played, and this is, believe me, this is not me knocking against him, but it's going back to the point we made last show that at some point, it has to stop being he's doing the right things, he's making the right plays and not producing, to he's got to produce. He's in the top six. So right now, I don't understand how people... Now, now let, we're going to get into Shifley's flybys. This is going to be... We're going to dissect these and separate the player because they're, they're two different things and we'll, we'll dissect them and I'll like, give due to the crowd who are upset about uh, Shifley with some of the flybys that we saw here tonight. But on a team that needs offense... One of the players that is consistency del consistently delivering offense to you right now is Mark Shifley. So I, I don't understand the idea of trying to restrict his time because if you're taking away his ability to produce points, who are you replacing that with? Who's the person who's stepping in to the ice time that he's not filling and burying the puck? Is it Adam Lowry? Is it Paul Statsny? I don't know who it is, but right now, to, to me, as bad as things are going and as little as the Jets are being able to produce offensively compared to what we've seen them do it in the past, Mark Shifley is still one of their consistent point producers, and that's exactly what you need more of in the lineup, not less. Sure, Sean, but to me, this is simple power play minutes, right? I mean, they had eight penalty killing minutes and Mark Shifley's not killing penalties. So to me, that's where your three minutes of ice time are easily made up. I mean, and then I would also counter by saying, you know, I like what Dave Lowry has done in putting Pierre-Luc Dubois out with Shifley and Wheeler after the penalty kills are over. So, you know, good on him. I mean, I think that that's a smart coaching decision. Um, so I would just say the penalty killing minutes probably were an impact on that one. You said last night, Lowry or yesterday afternoon, Lowry had 12 and change today he had 15 minutes. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I know you're, I know where you're coming from. I just think that it's so interesting. I mean, today the line that was going best was probably Dubois and Connor based on scoring chances. And Perfetti had some of those scoring chances, and I thought it was another um, good effort for him. But what I would say, too, is that you know, right now there aren't any other players on the lineup, in the Jets' lineup who are in danger of producing more offense than Cole Perfetti has. So, I mean... They're in an interesting spot. They need to do a better job in terms of converting their opportunities. They're getting plenty of them. This was another example where they had they had you know ample opportunity to win that game to uh, beat Tristan Jari. Here's the other part. Like I understand before when uh, Carol Carl Vomelka is the guy in net. Tristan Jari is a legit legit yeah. Vesna Trophy candidate, and he was spectacular, especially early when the Jets carried the play for a good stretch uh, of the first period. Um, but yeah, I mean, Hey, it, it's super interesting to see. Like, this is what we talked about. The jet great example, Sean, Jeff Carter, Jeff Carter is the currently a third line hockey player. And the guy to his right, Evan Rodriguez is already having a career year because when Crosby and especially Malkin were out, Evan Rodriguez was playing in the top six. Now Evan Rodriguez slides onto the third line and he's, you know, he's been a sort of feast or famine kind of player, but I mean, we're talking about secondary scoring, and the Jets' third-line right winger, even though I've loved his effort, is Austin Pagansky. Like, right now, the production, it's night and day, right? So you got Carter and Rodriguez really flying, and for the Jets, they haven't had a lot of third- or fourth-line production, even though they had a fourth-line goal yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, 
I want to go to the other side of what I was talking about with Shifley because people were bringing up his plus minus uh, and the other side of him. So what I'm talking about earlier on with the point production, that's the good Shifley. But the bad Shifley was a little bit on display today. There was that, you know, on the play that Malkin kind of of is in the old bow drag. Are we at the stage where I, I think... Is this entirely I, okay? I talked about a lack of focus potentially on Connor Hellebuck turning that puck over and essentially costing the Jets the game or the two points in this situation. I don't know if I'd call that inexcusable. I think goalies go out and play the puck all the time and it almost always works out for you. And when it does, you know, it creates opportunities for your team to exit the zone. And who knows how many of those turn into goals if the if the if they don't make those plays, right? So I don't want to go too heavily on Connor Hellebuck for making that play. But in the midst of a four game sorry, three three game losing streak upwards to you know which ends up being a four game losing streak right now. Is there any excuse no for those flybys to be happening by Mark Shifley or Blake Wheeler in this situation? And and what what's the danger of being a coach who's still leaning on those guys, as I said, and leaning on them because you need the offense out of them, but leaning on guys who are putting together reels of tape that show inexcusable behavior that needs to be rooted out if you're going to beat teams like the Pittsburgh Penguins on a night like to, or a day like today. Yeah, I mean, you can't have a flyby. I mean, for Shifley, at worst, you have to have your stick in that lane, right? I mean, I understand it's a great, you know, really great fake by Malkin, but. I mean, you got to have better body and stick position in there. It, 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 you don't even have to have one or the other, Sean, right? Or even if you have one of the two things, you're not going to be in that sort of a situation. Uh, for me, I mean, I'm not excusing Wheeler for getting toe-dragged by Malkin either, but it's more acceptable for someone who's played two games in six weeks than it right. is for someone who's played every game and in most of the nights he's playing 20-plus minutes a night. So, And I also think in that situation... You know, Malkin is in a is not in a dangerous position when he toe drags Blake Wheeler. There still are a bunch of defenders behind him. So, uh, you know, would he like that play back? Of course he would. But to me, that's more of a timing thing. Uh, and if you've played more, that probably wouldn't happen. Uh, but in terms of the, like the Shifley flyby is is ridiculous. And it also, I mean, that also is a great reminder of, I mean, Je- Jeff Carter absolutely buries Mark or Josh Morrissey with the cross check. Yeah. In front of the net. I mean, yeah, what happened? Wrote, what wrote. happened to the cross-checking standard that we were uh, talking so eloquently about in the first ten or twenty or thirty games? I mean, um, you know, it, it's just an interesting time, and uh, those guys need to be better. Um, but I thought that. I mean, I thought that in terms of the defensive play, but I thought that that line was excellent, except for that nine-second span for the most part. I mean, yes, Shifley had one a flyby there that was an egregious one, but. In terms of their effort, I thought that their effort was pretty good throughout the game, you know. But yes, they were on for both goals, so I mean that goes on their record. So I get it. I mean that's that's part of the reason why people are disappointed and upset. But I also don't think that you can blame Shifley or Wheeler for the second goal because that's a goalie turnover. You know what I mean? So they were definitely responsible, partly responsible on the first one, but not really on the second. So, like, I get people, the chorus, saying, hey, those guys, you know, they're minus one in the game, even though they get the goal. I mean, yes, but that would be one of the examples where the second one, I don't really think you could pin that on the uh, the forward grouping there. Um, 
Myself and Mitch Peacock, who stepped in to host uh, for me on this show a number of times before, a good friend of both of ours, we used to work together at CBC. And I remember uh, I was doing news back then, and he was the sports guy at CBC. And we had a big, long conversation. It was right at that time Barry Trotz was leaving Nashville. Uh, and it was right around the time the Jets were hiring Paul Maurice. And I had said at the time that the Jets should be doing everything that they possibly can to bring in Barry Trotz. Now, I was not covering sports at the time. And the one thing that I find that you can't do in sports is you can't have these like pie in the sky ideas and just throw them out like it can happen. Mitch was making his argument a lot more rooted in reality in that Paul Maurice was here. He knew that the Jets liked them, that they were probably going to be around. And my counter was like, I don't care if that's what they like. They should be doing everything they can to bring Barry Trotz back and try and get him on this team. Now, I've always wondered what would happen had they been able to do that at that time. He goes to Washington, and I always remember this. Like He's a turning point in Washington's history, and if you hear it from a number of different players, one of the things that he was able to do with Alexander Ovechkin was say, when we, when you ha- when we have the puck, I'm never going to tell you what to do. Do whatever you want. I will never get in the way. I will never try and limit your creativity. You are Alexander Ovechkin. You will, I will never be able to teach you to do what you do better than you already do it. But when they have the puck, that's my time to shine. And I need you to do this when they have the puck. This is what I require from you. And that is the payment that you give to me for the freedom to do whatever you want offensively when you get that puck. And I'm wondering, isn't that exactly what Mark Shifley needs in his career because we, we see this time and time again, and there's always questions about him on the defensive side of the puck. And when you see flybys like that, you know, those are clear, clear indicators of a guy who is not a thousand percent committed defensively. And that that is the guy, you know, that's a, that's a place where if he was being coached by Barry Trotz and the same deal had been struck between Barry Trotz and, and uh, Mark Shifley, as was struck between Alexander Ovechkin and Barry Trotz, that... Shifley would not be holding up his end of the bargain. And so therefore he would be not be, he would not be given the creative license offensively that, that you get for showing, showing up in the defensive end. But at some stage, isn't there, doesn't there have to be a standard that has to be met first by Mark Shifley defensively? And you've said this before, Ken, not all the, you know, Patrick Kane isn't the best defensive player in the league. I'm not suggesting Mark Shifley has to become Ryan O'Reilly or the best defensive uh, defensive forward in the league. But don't, doesn't there need to be an effort to get him to the place where he is at least not costing the team with plays like that uh, before he can go and do what he's so capable of doing offensively? Yeah, I mean, it's a fair question, but uh, what I can, I'm pretty sure what I can guarantee to you, Sean, I don't think that Dale, I, you don't think that Dale Howard, Chuck, Claude Noel, or Paul Maurice tried, though, like, tried to get the message through. I can guarantee you all of those coaches want that from Mark Shifley or wanted it at various points in times. Uh, in terms of context, Paul Maurice replaced Claude Noel on January 14th of 2014. Barry Trotz was fired in April of 2014. So what we know is that the Jets missed the playoffs that year, but it seemed as though Paul Maurice had a message that was resonating. So in terms of the timeline, like exactly. I'm not saying the Jets should have, should, 
right? I mean, yeah. but no, he he'd made the he'd made he, he'd already Mitch Peacock made the point that Paul Maurice had already kind of entrenched himself and ingratiated himself to the organization, which he had. And and let's give Paul Maurice but, credit where he's due. It's due. The team has gone nothing but up since he took. Took, uh, I know what you're saying, though. So if, if the if the situation is different, and if Trotz had been fired in December instead of a- in April, I mean, man, sure, they would it be great to have figured out what happened or what could Barry could Barry Trotz have resonated with Patrick Laine the way that he did with Alex Ovechkin? I mean, uh, you know, revisionist history is always entertaining to consider, especially on a day like today, which is the one year anniversary of the trade, right? Um, but here, this is what I would say, Sean. I mean, in some ways, isn't maybe Lowry looking at that in terms when when Mark Shifley has 17 minutes of ice time, maybe Dave met, Dave Lowry's telling him that that's not acceptable, right? I mean, it's not it's not as as blatant as a third period benching, but if you want to play more, I can't have you having these flybys. And again, what we don't know, and Dave Lowry's not going to tell us at a podium. Like, what is he saying on the bench? Or what is he saying? I, I fully expect that Dave Lowry's calling Mark Shifley into the, t- into the meeting room or into his office and saying, hey, you know, you're doing a nice job offensively, but look at this clip right here. This, this can't happen on a regular basis. Okay, so the, here, here's where I think maybe a missed opportunity or something that, okay, sorry, this is a culture that has been established with the Jets under Paul Maurice. It looks like it's going to be continued by Dave Lowry in which they take care of their business in the room and it never surfaces in the, in the, uh, the media. And Sheldon Keefe the other day came out after the Toronto Maple Leafs, they were up 3-1 against the Rangers and then blew that lead. And he came out, I forget what he said. You may remember, I think he just called them soft and purposeless or something like that. Yeah. And then the next day he was asked about attacking the team like that. And he'd said, listen, guys, do you really think I walk out here and say stuff to you that I haven't said to them in the dressing room already? Like, here's the deal. I went in and I told them exactly that. And then I bring it out here in front of you. So, This is the one place that I always differed with how Paul Maurice handled things. Paul Maurice would never, ever bring up any kind of negativity regarding his players in the media. And I think his players loved him for that. You know what I mean? But I don't think there's a problem with Dave Lowry coming out. Like, let's just say Dave Lowry went in and said something to Mark Shifley on the bench after that happened, has made it clear to Mark that that will not stand, that is not okay, and then came out and and said something that we all know. You know it, I know it, everyone in the chat room knows it, everyone watching the game knows that it's not okay for him to be doing that. So for for Dave Lowry to state the obvious that it's not okay for him to do that after he's already made it clear to him, what it does is it puts it on record and makes it part of the overall hockey conversation in Winnipeg. Mark Shifley can't continue to get away with that. I think one of the reasons why this is such an interesting conversation is it's so shrouded in secrecy, right? Mark Shifley went for years and never gets benched. He, he's got these these times where he just does not show up defensively. And then all of it, and, and we're all wondering, is someone saying something to him? Is he being called out like this? So finally, last year at the end of the year, Paul Maurice benches him. And it's like after a number of years, this finally happens. And then we go back to the same deal. Like no one here, like I can, I think you and I both know that something is being said behind the scenes. But how sternly is it being said behind the scenes? If a coach came out and said to Mark Shifley, this is not going to stand, you're not going to do this anymore, or we're going to have to address this basically, you know, with your ice time, 
and with your opportunities. And if he said that to him and then came out in public and said that so that you knew, I knew, and all the fans knew that Dave Lowry says this isn't going to stand anymore, then there would be accountability. But that's the deal. Is what, Has there been accountability in trying to hold Mark Shifley to a certain standard defensively? Because in his in his opportunities on on the power play in his ice time it is never shown that there is some kind of level of accountability being trying to re, trying to be reached behind the scenes by taking away opportunity yeah sean i mean we're both a little bit old school in that way so we'd like coaches to be more direct and honest but that's just not the way the majority of coaches are players are sensitive so I understand what you're saying, and I'm sure the fans would love it if that were the case. But I don't see a lot of coaches. I mean, I know you've given the Trots example, and yes, Barry's won a cup, and he's been a little bit more direct than a lot of people. But Barry's old school too. The yeah. majority of coaches don't get anywhere by hanging their players out to dry publicly. I just don't think that's hanging them out to dry, though. I just think it's stating a fact. Like if you've said, I, it I'm in not your arguing room, with you, not saying it yeah. a fact. I'm just saying players don't respond the way that maybe they did 20 years ago. Is is my counter to that point? I'm not saying I like it. I'm just saying that I don't think that that's a way to. I don't think there's a lot of players that really get fired up when the coach calls them out or is hard on them. I loved it when coaches were hard on me, but that's I'm wired differently than most people. So I get it, but uh, I know what you mean. I mean, would we like a little bit more transparency? Of course, but um, I what I can guarantee you, I, I can guarantee you Dave Lowry's not going into the office and saying, that was a great play by Mark Shifley. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's... I, I know what you're saying, and and I think you're. I know you're not right. saying like, that either. If if you take a look at a guy like Pierre, or sorry, Peter Laviolette, he would never do what I'm suggesting, right? Like, and this is a guy who's an old school coach who's been around for a long time, who's won a Stanley Cup. Like to to your point, I mean, yeah, Barry Trotz is an example I use, and it makes it seem like I'm like holding some kind of high moral ground because here's Barry Trotz, the greatest coach in sports, handles it like this. But that doesn't mean that's a the cookie cutter way to do it across the league. And there's plenty of successful coaches who would never do that you know gallant would never do that uh but not just I, some most would never most do it. most would not but I, I i do think that there's i don't know i just think i just think i don't think it helps the winnipeg jets to never ever address this it, it doesn't help for the coach to not address this because what happens is then it gets addressed in in the media like this or it gets addressed amongst fans and in chat rooms and and message boards and stuff like that where this is the conversation that happens and then what have we talked about this year there's been talk about trading mark shifley and there's a lot of people who are saying already like move pierre-luc dubois despite the fact pierre-luc dubois is not a point per game player move him up it's time for mark shifley to move back down like these are the conversations that happen if you don't address these things and i just think sometimes i mean there i go back to it and north end rick had a phenomenal point earlier on how can you convince players in the dressing room that there's accountability if plays like that go un unchecked and and Maybe they're checked and maybe they're talked about in the dressing room, but if they keep happening over and over again, in my mind, they still remain unchecked. Sure. No, I'm, I'm I, Mark Shifley has work to do on the defensive area. I mean, this is not breaking news. We know that Mark knows it. The coaching staff knows it. What's going to be done about it. We'll see. I mean, right. That's the, yeah. that's the next question. Um, 
Okay, well, let's get to the next question because uh, we want to talk about the usage of players as it was. Um, what did you think of Svechnikov being out of the lineup uh, and some of the decisions made by Dave Lowry as to who he iced tonight? Yeah, here's the thing for me. I don't think there's been a bigger backer for Yevgeny Svechnikov uh, than myself. That started in the first day of the pro tryout camp where we saw him. Um He's a, he's a nice player. He's been found money. He's done an excellent job. But what we can't ignore is that Yevgeny Svechnikov was hurt. And to me, I don't think... I know Dave Lowry said he was healthy enough today to have been able to play. Um, if that's the case, would I have liked to have seen him play? Yes, but I don't think that he was fully healthy. And let's not ignore the injury history for Yevgeny Svechnikov. He's missed a lot of time in his career, which is why he was available to the Jets in the first place. So to me, I want to see Svechnikov. I think he's part of the Jets' optimal lineup. The fact that he didn't play today doesn't uh, get me up in arms um, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I think he can help. We're talking about secondary scoring. I think he can help. But since he suffered the knee injury, he only played a you know small number of games, and he hasn't been play hasn't been used a lot. So to me, I, I think that Austin Pagansky has given the Jets a nice little little bump. But I think he's probably more of a fourth-line player than a third-line player. But this goes back to what we've been discussing for months, Sean. What has Pagansky been doing? He gets up and down the ice, he gets on the forecheck, and he gets on the body. So for for a third line that's had not much of an identity outside of the times where Lowry has played with Kopp, I can understand why he fits there for Dave Lowry. Do I think in the longer term, I think that Svechnikov is a better fit on that line when you're looking for secondary scoring, but he won't bring as physical an element but he could help your offensive element. So, I mean, this is the thing we've talked about. The Jets are searching for an identity. Right now, they're still kind of in the middle when it comes to that identity. So I I personally would like to see Svechnikov more. I expect to see him more. Um, There too, I'm curious about David Gustafson. Where is he at? I mean, and also too, let's just quickly transition on defense. We talked about this before the game. Uh, Actually, I thought Bullyu was fine in the game, to be honest. But this was an example where I would have liked to have seen Vili Hainel play. Um, yeah. But here's part of the problem. And this is not, I'm not making excuses. It's not as simple as people think. The Jets needed to have waived Nathan Beaulieu by Friday. I don't think waivers happen on the weekend. So I'm not sure what the timeline is for these injuries for Logan Stanley or Dylan DeMello. Obviously, DeMello's injury probably came out of yesterday's game. But I don't, you know, outside of putting Pagansky on the taxi squad, the Jets would have had to make a lineup or roster decision to be able to make room for him. And I'm not saying they couldn't have done that, but it would have been a lot easier. I think the Jets felt that they solved their cap woes in the short term by placing Nikolai Ehlers on LTIR. But what they didn't do was wave Nikolai. If Ehlers was not going to go on LTIR, then I think the Jets would have had to have gone with more of a 21 or 22-man roster, and they probably would have had to have subjected a veteran to waivers unless they send a guy like Veselainen down. But uh, personally, like I said, I think this was an opportunity where uh, the puck-moving ability of Vili Hainala would have been uh, a nice fit for the Jets. But, you know, I don't think that people can point out and say the fact that Bolu played was why the Jets lost. I mean, uh, that that isn't accurate either. But uh, I also think, too, I mean, we talked about Dylan Sandberg yesterday, Sean. I thought that Sandberg had some nice shifts today. He had a great chance in the first period where he came down Broadway, had a really good, nice play. I think it was Perfetti that found him late. Really smart play, getting involved uh, offensively. I thought defensively he was a little bit better uh, than maybe yesterday where there were a couple of hiccups. But 
Um, here's the thing. I mean, I, I personally would think that that the move, the part of the decision would have been for the penalty kill. The Jets are missing both Stanley and DeMello, who have been part of the penalty kill. That's probably why, from the coaching staff's perspective, that Bully got the nod. Uh, and without, like I said, without being able to, to shuffle the roster to make room for Hanela, that probably had something to do with it. Having said that, it, if Dylan DeMello is going to miss time, it's an opportune time for Vili Hanela to play because Dylan DeMello is a puck mover. Yes, he doesn't kill penalties, but he's a guy that kind of moves the puck. But now, I also thought that Nate Schmidt looked good with Josh Morrissey again today. Didn't yeah. you? Yeah. Sorry, I, I yeah, went to the buffet I, there. Back to the original point. I'd like your thoughts on Hanela too, obviously. Well, I, I just think, I, I think you're right. I think you perfectly explained why Boyu is in the lineup when it came to the penalty kill, and that's where he was needed. It yeah. just seems to me to be sp- splitting a little bit of focus when it comes to, you know, here we are, we're making these, we're having these conversations about Mark Shifley and the, his usage and, and Blake Wheeler gets pulled into the lineup and gets 21 minutes on his first night out and all of the opportunities given because why? Because this team needs to score goals. That seems to be its biggest issue right now. So it kind of seems strange to go and, and be making these decisions, you know, to try and create more offense and then not make the same decisions on the back end. Now right. I know it's not, it's not, you know, it's, it's like, what was that, uh, that uh, game that you played when you were younger on Nintendo with the hockey guys and you could go with the really <laughs> tall, skinny guys who were just all the heavy clappers yeah. you go with a big heavy guy like you gotta find a balance if you go with like four tall skinny guys you're gonna find yourself in trouble because you're gonna get run all around the ice so it seems like what the jets were trying to do today was create offense up front but find balance on the back end but i just wonder at this stage uh you know especially uh you know that now that sandberg has found himself a place in the lineup what it is gonna take to get villy hanela in right. the lineup because uh, I, i'm looking at this and i'm thinking of this situation it is not serving him to be sitting on the taxi squad and not being given an opportunity. And when you've got two of your defensemen out in that manner, uh, what's it going to take for him to get in? So now he's below, or it sure looks like he's below Sandberg in the depth chart. And Stanley, uh, he's got, he gets pushed out of the lineup. DeMello gets pushed out of the lineup. And now also Nathan Beaulieu jumps in ahead of him. It looks like a really steep climb just to get Billy Hanela into a game at this stage. And you're taking a look tonight against a team like the, the Pittsburgh Penguins who aren't necessarily overly heavy, uh, but they're aggressive, right? They like to try and pin, you know, pin you in your own zone. Right. Hanela is the kind of guy who you think is going to succeed at, 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 Clean exits, that pressure. Right? Clean exits. Exact, exactly. He's the exact kind of guy you want in that situation. So to me, uh, and believe me, I, I hate sounding like this. I hate sounding like, oh, the coach did this. I would have done this. I think we sound like idiots at times when we do that. But I would have liked to have seen Vili Hanela in, in a game by this point uh, and given an opportunity. I think tonight was a good opportunity to do that. And if he comes into the lineup and if you're expecting from him what you've seen from guys like Pagansky and Reichel and Samberg as they get into the lineup and they kind of throw their their all into this new opportunity on a team where, you know, playing well is supposed to give you opportunity. I want to see what Vili Hanela plays like now on a team where a coach has basically said, hey, if you do well, you're staying in the lineup. Like, I want to see Vili Hanela given an opportunity to play his way onto that lineup and not being 
able to move him out because he's playing so well. He strikes me as the kind of guy who has met that challenge at the AHL. He met that challenge in the World Juniors. He met that challenge when he was in Finland. When is he going to get that chance to meet that challenge here? And believe me, I've been one of the guys who's been saying, like, you know, don't rush this. It's it's great to have him play, you know, in the AHL and get his time in. But a second year where he's caught in that kind of purgatory of of the uh, the taxi squad, I do not think serves him. Uh, this team's got to use him, and they got to see what he can do and give him an opportunity to show them what he can do. And there too, I mean, the, a lot of the qualities that we talk about when we're talking about Cole Perfetti are qualities we've heard about Vili Hainala in terms of the, you know, the ability to process the game and the offensive acumen and, you know, the, you know, the wanting to work and all those things. So if you've seen how well it's worked up front with Cole Perfetti, I would think there's some temptation from the coaching staff to see if inserting a player like him could give them a bit of a boost. And uh, to me, if DeMello's going to miss, you know, more than just today's game, we don't know the severity of the injury. Um, I would say that it's a good example. I mean, again, is it a great is it a great time to toss a guy out against the Florida Panthers? Well, I mean, there there could be some risks involved with that, sure. But I think the bigger risk is is not finding out what what the Jets have. I, I we know that they value what he brings to the table. Um, this is not trying to rush things along, but uh, if if Vili Hanel is not in the lineup on Tuesday, I would expect him to be returned to the Moose, but. Uh, I think yeah. there's a there's a better than decent chance that he gets a shot against either you know Florida or Vancouver. Uh, otherwise, he's going to be back in the American Hockey League. But I would say too, I would also counter by saying, you know, Halen has already played 20 plus games with the Moose already this year. And the other thing that people, I mean, I understand it was a long time in the taxi squad last year, but Vili Hainala and Cole Perfetti played the same number of games last year like between 48 and 50, between their different levels of hockey. And we haven't seen that be a deterrent to Cole Perfetti's um, ability to play at the NHL level this year. So everyone who said it was a lost season for Villahena last year, I don't I don't believe that. You know, the, between his time in Finland, World Juniors, uh, AHL, I mean, I don't think it was a lost year. But I do think that right now would be, we're, if it's not now, we're getting pretty close to the time when it is going to be uh, handle time, at least in terms of testing it out. And I would say too, Sean, the one other thing that I would say on that point, I think if Brendan Dillon doesn't leave the lineup, like if Brendan Dillon's not being asked to play back-to-back games after missing a week due to COVID, maybe the situation is different uh, because the only, you know, the only hesitation a coach would have would be that maybe they don't want to have two rookies in the, in the, in the lineup at the same time when a guy like Dylan is coming off after not playing. Um, Hanel's year will be burned this year regardless. I, I'm sure you're yeah. trying to make, I'm sure that's a joke that the person is making, yeah. but uh, the entry-level yeah. slide is not an issue this year. Uh, yeah. Both Hanel and Sandberg's contracts will be uh, counting no matter what, so um, because of age and, and those other things about the CBA. But, uh, I mean, okay. we should talk like if, you know, it's the one-year anniversary of the uh, big trade. I mean, obviously, I know where, where folks stood uh, last year, but uh, what do you think folks are feeling about Pierre-Luc Dubois? Today was another example uh, where we saw him chirping Sidney Crosby, very physically engaged. Um, I'm thinking people's uh, views have changed when it comes to the receipts about how they feel about the trade. I know. Well, I'll say this. Uh, you know, everyone's got their feelings about it. I think that this... For, for the majority of Winnipeggers. I didn't think that 
people would be able to forget Patrick Laine. Uh, I know that they haven't, but right. I, I don't think that there is this, uh, you know, it's a, I, lo- I love speaking in memes. There's that meme on the internet of, of Wolverine, the cartoon, and right. he's like looking at a picture and he's like lovingly touching it. I don't think that there's too many Winnipeggers sitting at home in their bed, lovingly caressing a photo of Patrick Laine. I think that P- PLD has helped them move on. I think a lot of people feel that the Jets have won this trade. Um, I I personally uh, am not entirely sold on that. I do think that what Pierre-Luc Dubois brings to this team uh, is is a... uh, you know, a, a, a willingness to play a, a different style. I think in the long term, it's going to make the team more successful if they can adopt that style. To me, he kind of stands out a little bit right now on this roster and has for a while when he's at the top of his game, he's got a ruggedness, uh, an in-your-face quality uh, that I don't think, like, it, like who's the next guy in line who follows that kind of play? You know what I mean? It, maybe yeah. it's Blake Wheeler at this stage. So it's not like the one thing I would say about him is he does it, but he almost does it on an island, at least up front. You've got t- tough guys on the back end who can play like that. But at least it's a start. I think if you want to be that team that leans on players as a team, instead of the way just the player does right now, you need to add more elements. And I think that's something the Jets maybe will need to look at, especially if they miss the playoffs this year, is taking a look at their team and seeing how can we get more performances like we get out of Pierre-Luc Dubois to make us a harder team to play against. So I think it's the right thing. But I also do think, and the numbers will suggest it, and everyone's looking at this and saying, ha, Pierre-Luc Dubois came here. He's got more points right now than Patrick Lyonet does. We win that trade game over. But what Pierre-Luc Dubois has never been able to do since he came to the Winnipeg Jets is is to fill the void of the hole in scoring that Patrick Laine left behind. Now, I think there was an expectation that players like Nick Ehlers were going to step into that void, which sure. he very, very much did last year. Kyle Connor has only got better. I think you're seeing a little bit of clearly a regression in points from Blake Wheeler. So maybe they're filling that void. But Patrick Laine on numerous, numerous occasions as a young man in his stint with the Winnipeg Jets, went out and won games with his offense. Often. He did it often. Uh, And I I have not seen that element yet from Pierre-Luc Dubois. So I don't see this as a perfect soft. I think that Pierre-Luc Dubois adds a lot of stuff that Patrick Laine did not add. I think Patrick Laine had a magic about his offense in a Winnipeg Jets jersey that maybe no one else outside of you know Blake Wheeler when he had 91-point seasons and Mark Shifley have been able to, to produce. And the one thing that I, I think that he was never, ever given credit for, and I think this, that this is on display in his time in Columbus, he was such a dangerous scorer that as long as you had capable people around him, you either had to try and shut down those capable people and Patrick Laine burnt you, or if you focused on trying to stop Patrick Liney from scoring, which was hard to do because he can score from so far out. It created so much open ice for other people and other players were able to take advantage of that. So I'm not entirely convinced that it's a perfect saw off. I think on some nights the Jets are better off 
having Pierre-Luc Dubois in their lineup. I think that some nights they'd be better off, you know, a night like tonight or the last game that they played or that game against Washington. How much would you like to have that Patrick Line magic and that capability to score out of nowhere the way that he was able to do with the Winnipeg Jets to turn these losses that we're talking about into wins i think it's definitely an element that's been missing from the team this year so to me as crazy as it sounds a year in ken and maybe this is a complete and total uh cop out by me but i haven't seen enough tape on this to make a decision on whether or not i think that this is a good trade or not I, now i've said this and i'll go back to this original point if pierre-luc dubois signs this offseason long term with the winnipeg jets like you have predicted that he will then regardless of what happens it's a win because patrick line was not going to stick around but i am not entirely certain for a second that the winnipeg jets are better off with with pierre-luc dubois in their lineup than they were with patrick line in their lineup yeah, and I'm not saying that you should, and, and nor was I. I mean, I was just saying that how the narrative has changed a lot in the in the let's say the six months uh, after the initial foray, where both players struggled, and it was a surprise to all of us. And how Jack Rosovic last year was the player who had the most production among the three players, and now Jack Rosovic, according to our friend uh, Eric Aaron Pornstein of the Athletic in Columbus, thinks that Jack Rosovic may, may very well be on the move and. Um, I just think that given the circumstances, we know that Patrick Lina was not going to be here uh, beyond a year or maybe two. Um, that's where I think the Jets are in a good position with Dubois. I mean, the Jets miss Patrick Lina on a lot of nights. There's no doubt about that. But for, if they weren't going to have Lina, being able to replace Lina with Dubois uh, was a good get for the Winnipeg Jets. We know we're not going to have the full information until probably three to five years from now. I'm just shocked, uh, Jeff or Sean, that you haven't brought up the rink fries column from our buddy Jeff Merrick that suggested something you've been dying for for the last year. He What's said, that? "Patrick Liney potentially to Florida." Yeah, well, hey, now let, let me let me say this, and, and I thought that originally, but I. If I were Florida, I wouldn't do that. I, I wouldn't be tinkering if I were in Florida, and I wouldn't be adding guys that are going to chew up a whole bunch of cap space. I look at the Florida Panthers as a team that, if they're able to manage their cap, could be one of these teams that is great for years to come. I could totally see them knocking the crown off the Tampa Bay Lightning's right. head and putting it on their head and keeping it there for a couple of years. I think what happens oftentimes with teams like that is they end up blowing it by like going for too much. I don't think that's the... Uh, I don't think that that is the right tack for them to take. But I am also a believer that, you know, anyone who's sitting here and saying that, you know, Patrick Lyonet is a bust as a hockey player now, I just think that it's a oh, terrible fit for him. It's a terrible, terrible fit for him with the Blue Jackets. This is a guy that if you can get him on a team and surround, like he's he's a shooter, period. So, and, and I hear some people kind of t uh, hammering my take here, and I believe it. I love it when people go after us for stuff like this. Pierre-Luc Dubois is a center. He drives play. He's taken, I think, Kyle Connors' game to a level that we've never seen it before. I think he's a driver in that respect. Patrick Laine, I don't believe is that, but Patrick Laine is a finisher. But man, oh man, he is one of, if not top three, in my belief, when he's on, best finishers in the entire game. So if you can get him around players that can get him in the puck, he's going to be a dangerous player again. He's going to be an absolutely phenomenally dangerous player. I just don't think they have a lot of dangerous players in Columbus to, to play around him. So 
he's got one more year there, maybe less because if Columbus doesn't want to lose him for nothing, they're going to have to move him to try and get something for him. And if he can get into a situation where people are going to, I think this whole idea, listen, if you're leaning on the excuse right now that Pierre-Luc Dubois has more points than Patrick Laine does, and that's why they won the trade, that's going to be a dangerous argument to make because Patrick Laine has the potential to go somewhere, get alongside some good players that can feed his finish, and then he could absolutely take off. So I, I would be focused more on what Pierre-Luc Dubois has done. This is the other thing I'd say uh, about you know what uh, what people had said about the importance of Pierre-Luc Dubois at center. I agree with that entirely, almost everything. Every time you're going to take a center ahead of a winger, but this is the deal. Craig Button talked about it with Sarah Oleski on the TSN broadcast about when that trade was made um, and Pierre-Luc Dubois comes in and all of a sudden the Jets are looking as deep down the middle as any other team in the league. That really hasn't translated, and and it hasn't, Ken, because of what we keep talking about. It just seems so hard for these Jets to get everybody going on the same night. So if you've got one, two, three beast centers, and they come at you, and they're playing one, two, three in your face, and they're all at the top of your game, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to deal with that. And I know that the Jets needed that second-line center for years, but we have not seen since Pierre-Luc Dubois arrived in Winnipeg a Winnipeg Jets team that has rolled out the centers and steamrolled teams because they've got so much talent down the middle. They have yet to put it together. Is is the potential for it there? You're damn right it is, but the results have not been there since Pierre-Luc Dubois came here. And, and I don't say that by saying it's on Pierre-Luc Dubois. I'm not <laughs> saying that. I'm just saying they've got all the, the, the personnel in place, but has it clicked yet? I don't think it's clicked. No, I mean, what I would also say that, you know, based on some of the players in the organization, whether that's uh, Chaz Lucius, who's been absolutely on fire at the University of Minnesota since coming home from the World Junior, uh, you know, when that's Cole Perfetti working, I mean, we'll see if some of those other young guys can pick up the slack uh, when their time comes, respectively. But, and for folks, I mean, one of the jokes was uh, your team line and I'm team Dubois. I mean, I, I've, I've been quite forthcoming in terms of how I think that Pierre-Luc Dubois is an excellent addition. Um, I liked everything about Patrick Laine. He was a insightful young player. It was interesting to watch him grow up, Sean. He showed up at 18 years old uh, from the first conversation around the batting cage um, at Coca-Cola Field in Buffalo, or now it's called Salem Field. Uh, Patrick was an engaging personality, uh, someone who always gave us the time of day. Uh, it was nice to see him in Columbus. You know, it was unfortunate circumstance he wasn't playing, but had a chance to briefly talk to him about uh, just to you know, send my condolences after the death of his father. But uh, you know, Patrick's a guy who you know, a lot of people enjoyed being around, and that's teammates. That's uh, you know, reporters liked having conversations with him um, because he's a you know outgoing personality. So I mean, if if anyone thinks that I don't appreciate Patrick Liney, I'd like you to reach revisit those receipts, even though we haven't had them as often on the Kenny and Rennie show. But uh, I think Patrick Liney is a Great young man, and I think he's just going to be scratching the surface. But uh, given the circumstances, like what we said, Lina wasn't going to be here long term. That was that was where things were at. Uh, I think Dubois has a has an opportunity to have a, an impact in other ways that Lina uh, maybe wasn't going to have. And and it's true. I mean, Pierre Luc Dubois, he one day he might score 40, 40 44 goals, but uh, Lina did that at nineteen years old. So they're definitely apples and oranges in terms of comparison. But uh, uh, Dubois has certainly shifted the narrative and 
and deserves some praise for doing so because we know it was a tough start for him uh, last year due to a variety of factors. No doubt. Okay, it's been a busy week for us, Ken. Let's shut her down here. Uh, once again, everybody, really appreciate you spending your time. I, I'll be honest, I was pleasantly surprised by the number of people we had here. It means a ton to us that you chose to spend so much of your weekend with us. Yeah, uh, and let's do it again on Tuesday. This is going to be fun. I can't wait. I'll be honest <laughs> with you, Ken. And uh, people are probably sick of me saying it, but at the beginning of the year, I went on record. I think it's going to be the uh, Florida Panthers in the final against the Colorado Avalanche. Again, I'm very confident with my pick there so far, but I have been looking forward to seeing this Florida team uh, in real time in live hockey here. Unfortunate that only 250 Winnipeggers can get tickets uh, to get in there and see that. But it is going to be a fun game on Tuesday, I think. Huge challenge for the Jets because if you take a look at the way that the Florida has been running up the score on a number of these teams, uh, it's going to be something. And Vancouver, one of the few teams that made this Florida team look human in the last yeah. little while. We'll get them the game after that. So it's going to be another interesting week. Jets need to turn this around. Going to be tough to do it on Tuesday, but make sure you come here to talk about it after with us afterwards, whether they do it or don't do it. It's going to be a good one. Thank you so much for joining us, everybody. We will see you on Tuesday.